Good morning. Yeah. How are you doing? Good to see you all here today. If you have a Bible, let's get right into it. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to ask that you stand with me. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read only four verses. Then we're going to have a seat and talk about making more. Um, my name is Tim, by the way. If you're here for the first time, very special welcome to you. I'm the pastor of this campus. We are one church, three locations, Norwood, North Attleboro, and Taunton, Massachusetts. Special welcome to all of you here for the first time. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Somebody say, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. I want to know something. How many of you want to win the spiritual battle we're in? Amen. You came to the right weekend. I'm going to pray that God creates a whole new environment in your mind for what's the reality we face as Christians, as people of God in a world that is going mad seemingly by the day. So let's pray. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you will speak to us. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit will have absolute control over these next few moments. We humble ourselves. We reject our own ideas. And we open our minds to the truth that you alone have. We pray that every mind and every heart this morning will be renewed and transformed. That you'll change us. We won't try to manipulate you, God. We want you to change us. Make us the people that you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Well, fist bump your neighbor and tell them, make war. If there, if there, is, if there was a week where I wish I didn't have a television set, it was this past week. I mean, this was crazy. I, you just, you know, hooked on the news. I, I couldn't get away. And every time I watched it, I was like, oh, really? Madness down the street? Madness in the Supreme Court? Madness in the Celtics? What's going on? <laughs> the Bruins? Oh. I know you come to church to be encouraged, but the Bible says there's a season to mourn. This is a season to mourn. But I, I, I look back at last week and I say, man, if you, think, if you don't realize that there is a spiritual war going on, you are a sitting duck for the enemy. There's, there's craziness. There's craziness. And, and 
not just out there. Because let's be honest, there's some craziness in here. There's craziness with the stuff that I do and I hate that I do. The stuff that you do and you hate that you do. We're, we're facing a real struggle. A struggle for our lives, really. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. He doesn't tell us to be strong because it's going to be easy. He tells us to be strong because it's going to be hard. You're going to face all hell on some occasions. You're going to go through some weeks that you wish you didn't have. And there are going to be weeks in your past that you wish you didn't have. But here's the real bad news. There's going to be some weeks coming up in your future that are coming. And it's time to be ready. That's, that's, the, that's the reason why we called this series Make War. Don't wait for it to happen. Don't wait for the enemy to bring it to you. You preemptively take up the armor of God and be ready for when it happens. Make war. This, this week passed crazy. But there's something happening up the, upcoming this week that I'm, I'm excited about. I'm particularly excited about. I know many of you are excited about. What's, this, what's happening this week? Anybody know? July 4th. <laughs> Who doesn't love July 4th? Come on. It's like the best holiday. Especially, especially up here in New England because this is one of the few holidays that we can spend outside and enjoy our, ourselves together. I know that this Thursday, grills will be hot. Fireworks will be shot. And iced tea is going to hit the spot. <laughs> but July 4th is our national birthday. We turn 237 years old on Thursday. 237 years of independence from Great Britain. On July 4th, the original July 4th, 56 men signed a document that would change not just the course of this country, but the course of the world. It changed everything because up until this country, nations were ruled by one. Now we have spread democracy the world over. This was an experiment. At the same time, when those men signed that document, they were making a, they were drawing a line in the sand that would cost them dearly. I think we're so far removed from it that we forget. That was an act of treason 237 years ago. They were saying, no more, no more King George. Okay? No, no more taxation without representation. We're going to throw our tea right into the harbor. Drink coffee. That's why Dunkin' Donuts is so beloved in New England. It started here, baby. Take your tea and send it to England. But we, we said... No more oppression from half a world away. And when we signed that document, we said, we're going to war. I think we forget that. I think we forget that the men who signed that document paid dearly for signing that document. Nine of them died during the war. Two of them lost two sets of sons. 
One dead, uh, one lost two sons in the war and fighting, and two were captured by the British. There was a guy named John Hart. He, he signed the Declaration of Independence. Do you know that John Hart lost everything? His property was confiscated. His wife was dying when the war began. They, actually, they literally ripped him away from his wife while she was dying. He, got, he escaped. He was driven into hiding for most of the war, spent years in caves and in forests, his 13 children fled for their lives. When he finally came back, he found his home burned to the ground, his wife dead, and his children gone. And a few weeks later, he died from exhaustion himself. John Hart signed that document, and it literally cost him everything. Kind of a far cry from what we make July 4th, isn't it? Because July 4th for us is not, you know so much about war and independence and fighting and sacrificing and laying down our lives for a cause that's greater than ourselves now. July 4th has kind of been whittled down to National Barbecue Day. Don't get me wrong, I'm pro-barbecue. Barbecue at will. I'm pro you inviting me and the family over for barbecue, especially if you're doing baby back ribs. I like mine mesquite and smoky. Amen. But July 4th today, as opposed to July 4th back then, far cry. Do you know that I read a statistic that 25% of Americans can't even tell you what country we broke away from? 25% of Americans? I don't think you should be called an American if that's the case. I think you should hand in your citizenship right there, and we'll send you right back to Bangladesh, where you came from. <laughs> Well, I'm serious. We got to understand that we've come so far away from what it really meant. And I think about Christianity. I think about being a follower of Jesus because here's what I think. I think that many of us have done that with our salvation. That we forgot when, when, when Jesus, you know, laid down his life and, and paid the price in, in his blood for our sins and for our lives, for our salvation, it was war. And not only that, but when we got rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's light, we entered a cosmic war. It's, it's not that we weren't in it before. It's just that we were on the side that kind of leaves you alone if you're on their side. But when you came to Christ, you crossed the line. You, you declared independence from Satan. You declared independence from the kingdom of darkness. You were liberated. You were freed. You were broken out of bondage through the name and the power of Jesus. But that old team that you were on is pretty ticked off at you. Wants you back. And if he can't have you back, he wants to at least make this life miserable. And we're at war. Too many Christians treat Christianity like it's just national barbecue life, you know, it's, just take it easy, you know. I'm going to heaven. I'm okay. I did. I said the prayer. Raise my hand. I go to church. I'm good. But Paul says, you got to fight. You got to fight, and you got to fight hard. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take up the armor of God. We just read it. These are military terms. He's serious. 
He wants you to fight for your family. He wants you to fight for your marriage. He wants you to fight for your children. He wants you to fight for your testimony at work or at school or at play. He wants your life to be a shining beacon of his, God, of his goodness and his love and his grace. But it's not going to come easy. Some of you are in the middle of a big fight right now. Some of you are fighting on the way to church. <laughs> Some of you got a fight waiting for you at work tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday. Some of you are just worn out. If you're being real honest, just say, I'm just worn out. Honestly, I'm just tired. I'm here to remind you, it's not going to be easy. Jesus never promised an easy road. He actually promised a narrow road, a, a pathway that wasn't taken by many. It's going to be difficult. He promised us persecutions and sufferings and hardship. Why? Because it's war. And we got to take up our armor and we got to fight the good fight. So if you're taking notes today, I got three points for you. And then the third point, I'm going to outline how to do it. But the three points I want you to know first, foundationally for this, for this whole deal is this. Number one, real Christianity is war. If you're taking notes, real Christianity is war. Fake Christianity is I said a prayer and I'm going to heaven. I'm good. No, that's fake Christianity. And fake Christianity is also that God wants you healthy, wealthy, sexy, and wise. And you'll see that on any number of television stations. But real Christianity is a fight. Real Christianity is going to take energies and time and sacrifice Real Christianity is going to test your mettle, put you to the limits of what you're able to bear, and, and you're going to have some setbacks, but hopefully, through God's grace, you're going to have much, many more victories. But, but real Christianity is a battle. Am I talking to anybody who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? You've been there. You are there. You will be there. A bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle in the 1890s, he said this, and I love this quote. I just want to read you this quote because it's very powerful. It says, let me talk to you about true Christianity. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not the real thing. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married within a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their faith. Of, of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know nothing at all. What is he saying? He's saying Christianity is a fight. And I love the things that he lists there. He says, your Christianity should contain spiritual strife, exertion, conflict, self-denial, watching, and warring. These things are elemental to who we are in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, he said, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This is the reality of our kingdom. This is the reality of the work of Jesus in our world, that it is forcefully advancing. There is a battle going on. There are spiritual enemies abounding around us, and to be ignorant of these realities is only going to hurt you. We can't afford to say, oh, I'm good. I'm just going to heaven. That's not what Christianity is about. I actually like what Paul says in Ephesians 6.13. I want to put it in the NIV. We'll put it up on the screen for you. This is the NIV. Just a little, a little tweak in the, in the way it says uh, the battle here. 
Look what he says. Put on the full armor of God. And then the next three words. So that when. So that when the day of evil comes. What is he saying? It's not here yet. It's not here yet. And, and by the way, you say, well, when is the day of evil? I can't tell you. It's different for every single one of us. That's what he's saying to the church. He's saying, look, some of you, you just got out of a day of evil. What did you learn? You learned how ill-equipped you were. So now start to prepare yourself because that's not going to be the last one. Some of you are in the middle of it. And some of you are not in it. Right now you're in church today. You're like, hey, I'm good. What are you talking about, pastor? Some of you decided I am not taking notes today because I am just good. Spiritually checked off today. And it's like, man, I feel bad for you because the day of evil is coming. Give it time. It will happen. It will happen. When it comes, Paul says, be ready. Don't wait for the devil to bring it at you. Don't wait for your, your life to fall into this pit. Prepare yourself. Make war so that when it comes, you are ready. We are to be preemptively preparing for this fight. I give you permission in the name of Jesus, pick a fight. Pick a fight. Fight the good fight. Don't just stand by. Don't just stand pat. You say, well, Pastor Tim, you're making a big deal about war. What's the battleground? That's an important, that's an important you know, uh, understanding for any war. What are we fighting over? Here's what I think we're fighting over, because you got to look at the whole context of the book of Ephesians. By the way, the book of Ephesians is one of the most powerful books in the New Testament. I want to give you a jet tour through the book of Ephesians in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready? Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are all about what God did for you in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is. You have been redeemed. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You have the authority of Christ in you. God is for you, not against you. He wants to work through you and empower you. That's all what Ephesians 1 through 3 is about. I highly encourage you to read it. It's heavy reading, but it's great reading. Ephesians chapter 4 is, now you have to walk worthy of that. Okay, all that stuff that God did for you, you got to start living like that. you got to live from that, not from what the world hands you. You're going to live from the new reality of the truth of Jesus Christ in your life. And then Ephesians chapter 5, he gets real practical and he gets real meddlesome. Because he's not just saying, okay, now work this out. Walk according to the reality of Christ in you. Then he gets to that very... You know, everybody's favorite verse in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. How many of you got that on your coffee cups? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> this is a shock. And then he's talking about husbands, you got to love your wives. As Christ loved the church, you got to submit to one another too. There's a verse there, Ephesians 5.23. So there's dual submission and Paul starts meddling. What's he talking? What's the battleground? The battleground is marriage. The battleground is husbands and wives. How are you working out that relationship? Because that's the battleground that the devil loves to tear apart. The, 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 the enemy loves to give your marriage mistrust. Loves to give your marriage jealousy. Always oh, big on that one. Loves to give your marriage frustration. Arguments about money, 
arguments about the kids, discipline, coming at you. How do you solve all that? How do you resolve all those tensions? It's hard. That's the battleground. That's what we're facing as Christians. That's what we fight. That's what we fight for. We fight for our marriages. Second thing is that then he goes into parent, uh, children, obey your parents. How many of you have that on your coffee cups? Actually, let me ask you this way. How many of you would like to have that on your coffee cups? Amen. Yes, right? <laughs> children, obey your parents. Uh, parents, don't exasperate your children. What's he talking about? There's another battleground. Parent-child relationships. How are you going to handle that? Is it, is it like any surprise to know that our spiritual enemy is after our children? He wants to rob your children of their joy, love, peace, knowing Jesus. I mean, look at the, look at the culture, look at MTV, look at the television stations, look at the, the pop culture, all aimed at your kids, trying to rip them out. The covenant of Jesus Christ. We got we to gotta know that that's a battleground of Satan. He wants your children. I want to highly encourage every parent in this place. Pray over your children. This is so important. Do not just teach them their ABCs and one, two, threes. Do not just send them to church thinking we're going to do it for you. You have to take ownership and pray over those kids. They are a gift, a treasure from God Almighty. I pray over my kids almost every night. I pray over them. I've said a prayer over my, my two oldest children for years. I pray in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will make my daughter the greatest woman of God in her generation. Pray over my son, Connor. I pray you make him the greatest man of God in his generation. I encourage you to pray that prayer. You can't pray that one. You're going to have to pray. I pray him, you make him the second greatest <laughs> man or woman of God because I got, I got the greatest. <laughs> but pray, pray over your children because the enemy is after them. Pray to be a better parent. Children, if you're in the house today, pray that you'll obey your parents. I know right now you think they don't know anything. But you're going to turn 21 someday and realize, wow, they were smart. <laughs> you got to pray over these. This is the battleground. We're at war. And then, and then he gets into this weird statement. We struggle with this as Americans because we're like, well, really? Slaves, obey your masters. Now, you cannot possibly equate the slavery of the Roman world to the slavery of this country two centuries ago. They're, they're, every theologian who's worth, his, who's worth a dime, every historian will tell you there is just no correlation. All right? In the Roman world, slavery was this. Basically, when you agreed to work for somebody who paid all your living expenses, you were considered a slave. So that makes pretty much every single one of us slaves by that definition. Because we all work for somebody who pays us money so we can pay our living expenses. Yes? So he, what is he talking about? Slaves obey. He's talking about employee-employer relationships. When you go to work, you got to be a worker, not just for the person you're working for, but for God. You have to work hard because God is watching you. You have to work honestly because God, God is, your testimony hangs on how you work. So Christian, hear me. You can't be witnessing 15 hours a day. 
You got to work hard. You got to get the job done. You got to work well. You got to work, uh, show up on time. You, you can't lollygag. You are a representation of Christ to that employer. And then he talks about masters. He said, hey, employers, you better treat your employees right. If you're a Christian employer, you better treat them with dignity and respect because they're just, they're spiritually, they're your equals. All right, so that's another battleground, though. That's, so we got marriage, we got children and parenting and family, and then we've got workplaces. Now, how many know that's pretty much where the battle happens? You know, my marriage and my children, my family, or my kids or my parents, and when I go to work. Some of you had a work battle this past week. Some of you have one waiting for you one Tuesday morning. You can come to church and be all excited and be like, yeah, Jesus, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. And then you go to work and Monday morning, you're like, I hate life. <laughs> uh, right? It doesn't take long. You were saved just 12 hours ago. <laughs> And, and so we're in these battles, and those are the battlegrounds, and we cannot ever be ignorant of this reality. Real Christianity is what? Real Christianity is? Or, number two, Christians have real enemies. Notice what Paul says about our enemies. We do not wrestle against, say it with me, flesh and blood. All right. People are not the enemy. I repeat, people are not the enemy. So in this war for your marriage, your spouse is not the enemy. I'm sorry to disappoint some of you. Every spouse in the house, repeat after me. Ready? My spouse is not my enemy. Let the healing begin. They are your partner. And partners will fuss and fight and disagree. I mean, if you don't disagree about something in your marriage, one of you is not being honest. I mean, it's just a matter of time before you get to know anybody that you start to realize, I don't like things about them. I mean, that's, that's human relationships. But you gotta, you gotta understand that they're not your enemy. Okay, also, your children are not your, your enemy. Your parents are not your enemy. Your employer is not your enemy. Let's go back to the battlegrounds now. Your employer and your coworkers are not the enemy. I know that it's going to feel like they're your enemy sometimes. When they criticize you, when they condemn you, when they look down on you, when, when they frown upon the fact that you don't join them in, in the immorality, like P Peter says, they, they think it's weird that you don't join them in their own, in their debauchery. I understand it's going to look like that sometimes, but Paul wants to be very clear Flesh and blood, that's not the enemy. Republicans are not the enemy. Democrats are not the enemy. Congress is not the enemy. Uh, no, no human being is the enemy. But we do have a spiritual enemy, and there are demons and principalities. Notice how he lists so many different levels of enemies. Rulers, okay, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, unseen. You don't see this enemy, but here's what you do see. You see the effects. Now, there are some people in America, they say, well, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. Come on. That's old-fashioned stuff. That's ancient world stuff. That's, that's mythology, like, like Greek gods. Okay, listen. Jesus talked a lot about Satan. And if you're going to believe the stuff that Jesus says about loving your neighbor and loving God and doing the right thing, then you had better start listening to what he says about Satan. If there is no Satan, what was Jesus talking about? 
Because he said at one point, he said, I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He saw it. He cast out demons. Who was he casting out if there's no demons? He sent them into pigs. The pigs ran down the hill and destroyed themselves. Now, there are some Americans that say, I know, I get it in the Bible, but I don't see it in America. Of course you don't. America is at a different spiritual place than the ancient world. I guarantee you that if you go overseas and you go to some Muslim countries, there are missionaries that will tell you demon activity is alive and well. You don't even have to go for that far. You can go to Haiti and you can see demon activity rampant. See, we're so cloistered. We're so, you know, sheltered by our American ways. And I think that the devil takes a whole nother strategy when it comes to America. Do you know what I think that the strategy is? I'm not here. That's right. Your pastor is a weirdo. You just ignore me. You just ignore me. I don't exist. I think that when we start ignoring him, we're playing right into his hands. Keith Green was a, a Christian writer, a Christian songwriter in the 1970s. He died in a plane crash, but he wrote this song in the 1970s it's called Nobody Believes in Me Anymore. And it's a, it's a song from the perspective of the devil. And I want to read it because I think it absolutely, this is, this is the devil's ploy for America. And here's the words. He says, my job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. I can imitate your brightest light and make your night look just like day. I put some truth in every lie to tickle itching ears. I'm drawing people just like flies because they like what they hear. And then the chorus goes, I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know it's getting very easy now because nobody believes in me anymore. And that's exact, I mean, that just sums it right up. Just don't believe in those spiritual forces. Don't believe that there's demons out there. Listen, I can't see the wind but I can see its effects. I, I, I can't see demons, but I can see their effects on people's lives. And I think that the devil is just coy enough, just sly enough to do just enough damage so that it doesn't look like him. And we keep blaming each other, and fighting each other. Because what he really wants to do is he wants to destroy human beings. Why? Because human beings are God's precious possession. God loves people. God sent Jesus for people. Jesus died for people. The devil hates what God loves. We cannot be ignorant. We cannot be ignorant of the reality of our spiritual enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice the first line, be sober-minded. In the Greek, it could be reread like this. Come to your senses. Come to your senses, your enemy is out there. Peter doesn't say, oh, your enemy, that's just old-fashioned thought. No, no, he says, this is, the most, this is the highest form of reality to understand that there's a spiritual enemy out there who's out to get you. Come to your senses, wake up, be watchful, and he's looking for somebody to devour. Hear me, somebody needs to hear this today. The devil does not want to nibble at you. He wants to devour your life. And, and he'll send any number of ways, deception, lies. In, in, a, in, a, uh, in a week ahead, we're going to look at the tactics of the enemy because you need to know them. And I guarantee if you come to that service, it might be next week, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to be equipped on how to handle and how to sniff out the attacks of the enemy. The New Testament describes Satan over a hundred times. In the Old Testament, he's only mentioned six times. So this is not an ancient 
idea. This is a modern, this is a New Testament idea. All right? The, the New Testament says that he governs all those who are not Christians. He governs all those who are not Christians. He seeks to alienate men from God. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers. Uh, he works his evil by tempting persons. He hinders God's workers. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, We wanted to come to you, but I couldn't because Satan hindered us. Satan hinders God's workers. Some of your small group leaders, you got to be on, on guard about this. He will try to hinder your effectiveness in small group leading. He'll try to hinder my preaching. He'll try to hinder my teaching. Why? Because Satan knows better than most of us the power of this word. He knows that this word changes lives. And so he will try everything in the book to try to stop this from happening. You won't believe what happens to me right before I preach. You won't believe what happens in my life, that the, the thoughts that the devil just rages into my head right before I get up here, all these consuming thoughts. And I'm telling you, it's like every single week there's another fight just to get up here. And I, and, I, and I tell you that I got people praying for me every week. I love it. Thank you. Your prayers are working and, and God is good because here's the deal about the devil. As much as the, de the devil is alive and active, at the end of the day, the devil is defeated and Jesus is coming back and he's going to throw him into the pit of fire for all eternity. But we can't we can't be ignorant is what I'm trying to tell you. He is active. He is working. And you got to be aware of it. The good news about the devil is that someday, the Bible says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Some of you are in that battle right now. You're probably not battling Satan. Let's just be honest. I don't think Satan's in America. I really don't. I think that Satan's in Jerusalem. I really do. I, I, I'm being honest. Do you know why? I thought about it scripturally. Where was the first place that God chose to dwell? In the temple in Jerusalem. And I think that Satan, because he loves to mock God, and he loves to take over places that God had previously used mightily, geographically, I think Satan makes his home right there. And you look at all the conflict and all the, all the war and all the, all the tension in the Middle East, don't tell me that Satan doesn't make his house right there. He, he's, a, he's, an, he's a mockery. He makes a mock God and, do, and try to take over uh, the places where God dwelt. Do you know, this is totally off the subject, but let me just go there for a minute. Do you know that the seven churches in Revelation 1 through 3, do you know that every single city is now Muslim city? Because when God moves powerfully in a city, watch out. When the fire dies down, the devil loves to come in like a flood, loves to destroy that, to say, ha, I've taken over. But we know, we know that any residence Satan has on this earth is temporary. The Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. As much grief as he's given you, he's got a whole lot coming to him. And every time, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Every time Satan reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. Because it's not good in Jesus' name. Number three, all right, Christians have access to God's real power. There is a power 
that is available to you should you wish to receive it. And I'm not talking about the power of the mind. And I'm not talking about the power of the intellect. And I'm not talking about the power of your physical body. I am talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be very clear with you. Waters Church, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I believe that it's real. That you can feel it. That it's not a philosophy. Do we understand this? That when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you know it. And I, I, I feel bad for a lot of you. Because you've never received the Holy Spirit power. You're trying really hard. You're doing really good sometimes, but you have horrible times at other, at other, on other days. And listen, you, you can't just keep fighting in your own strength. You don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. I want to I give, give you three ways that, in which that you can get the Holy Spirit power. Three ways. Because it's real, it's tangible, it's life-changing, and it will give you victory. All right, there's other, other things we'll talk about. We're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, but this one I felt impressed upon to tell you today. Number one, you have to confess, I am not strong enough. I am not strong enough. In and of myself, my own ideas, my own philosophies, my own way of doing things, it's just not enough. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, just be strong. Those three words, in the Lord, are key. And then to kind of like follow it up, just to make sure, in the strength of his might. It's not your might, it's his might. Okay? I need God's power. You need God's power. You need your Bible? Yes. You need Jesus? Yes. But you need the Holy Spirit. There's three, three persons to the Trinity. We're all comfy with the Father. We all love Jesus. But why do we treat the Holy Spirit like the embarrassing uncle at Thanksgiving? He's God. And he's empowering and he can change your life. But you have to confess. You have to confess, I need him. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. I'm talking to some of you. I know you come from a denomination that didn't believe in him anymore. You come from a denomination that doesn't talk about him because they're scared of what he might do. He doesn't want to embarrass you. He wants to empower your life for victory. But you've got to confess it. You've got to say, yeah, I need the Holy Spirit. All right? Number two, you've got to prepare yourself spiritually. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to help you stand. He wants to help you stand. To be strong. And we'll talk about the armor of God in another week, but I really want to focus on the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? I put a prayer... I put a prayer in Ephesians 1. Before we get there, let me go to the third thing you need to do. I must continually pray. I must continually pray. Look what Paul says. 
later on after he lists the power of the armor of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's another word for prayer, for all the saints. He says pray four times in one verse. You think we should be praying? In fact, I thought about this, that um, Jesus gives us a model prayer in Matthew 6. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer we're supposed to pray. In teaching us how to pray, Jesus says these words. You can finish the line for me. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, Jesus is teaching us that prayer for your basic needs should happen every day. I never thought about this, but a few verses later, just after teaching us that we should pray every day for bread, just a few verses later, he says, and also you need to pray and deliver us from the evil one. I'd never saw this before, but it dawned on me this week. Jesus is saying, as often as you rely on God for your daily sustenance, that's how often you need to go to him for spiritual victory over your, over your adversary. Every day. Somebody say, every day. every day. I need to pray continually every day. Now, please don't hear me say you need to pray for three hours a day. Because this is what some of you think. Oh, I'm not prayed enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't prayed enough. Okay, look. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6. He says there are pagans out there who babble on and on thinking that God will answer them because of their many words. And Jesus says explicitly, don't be like that. And then he gives us a model prayer and the prayer is like six, three verses long. You can say it in 10 seconds. I'm not, I'm not advocating 10 second prayer either. But I am saying this, it's not in the prayer. It's in your heart before God. And it's in the God who hears the prayer and will answer so you can't manipulate them by praying for a long time. You can't say, okay, God, I pray for two hours now. Now we got a deal, right? You can't do that with God. He does, not, he does not acquiesce to your activities. He's sovereign. And he'll answer a one-liner prayer if that's all you got time for. But my point is this. How often are you praying for spiritual victory in your life? How often are you praying? You pray for stuff. You pray for friends. You pray for help. You pray for healing. You pray for joy. You pray for freedom. Let me ask them. When was the last time you prayed, God, deliver me from the evil one today? Today. And every day, just wake up say it. God, I know I'm going to face the enemy today. In Jesus' name, pray. So uh, for, uh, Psalm 37, uh, 34, verse 7, love this. God's angel sets up a circle of protection around us while we pray. I love that. I put a prayer in your, in your notes. I want to read it to you now. It's the prayer of Ephesians chapter 1. Powerful prayer. I encourage you to pray this prayer yourself. As a worship team, they can come on back. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the prayer. I pray, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you might know, what? 
What is the hope that he has called you to? What are the riches of in glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? That's a great prayer. And Paul is just saying, look, you don't need to pray for more power. You need to pray that your eyes will be opened to see the power that God already has available for you. I want you to stand with me.